Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hi there, music nerds, and welcome back to the ongoing season three of the podcast. I hope you've had a chance to keep up with all the latest episodes, and if not, be sure to peruse the list of recent shows and go have a listen to some that you may have missed. My guest this month is the great blues guitarist and singer Rory Block. All episodes of this podcast are brought to you from the Hen House Studio, just south of Nashville, Tennessee. It's my own place where I work recording and producing for bands and solo artists from all over the world. If you're in need of a recording or mixing facility or some tracks for your next project, feel free to check it out at thehenhousestudio.com, and you're always welcome to drop me a line about working together on your music, or if you'd like to comment on the podcast, feel free to reach out and contact me at steve at thehenhousestudio.com. Now, on to this month's episode. I've never actually met Rory Block, but I had a chance to speak with her on the phone a while back and had a great conversation with her that you're going to hear today. When I was first getting into acoustic guitar, I came across a series of Rory Block's records that she made on Rounder Records that I really liked. They they were punchy and had cool slide guitar playing and fingerstyle, really sort of aggressive right-hand-oriented fingerstyle guitar playing. And uh, she she just had this incredibly driving way of playing the guitar that I was drawn to. Sort of like John Hammond, but in kind of a more refined way, I guess. Anyway, I really liked those records and dug how she interpreted a lot of Charlie Patton and Sunhouse and Mississippi John Hurt stuff that I was just getting into at the time. I never got a chance to see her play, though, and honestly hadn't kept up with her more recent recordings. But my good friend at Stony Plain Records, Holger Peterson, set me up with some of her latest work, and I was happy to see that she's still making these great acoustic blues records. Lately, Rory has been dedicating herself to one particular artist's work and interpreting an album's worth of their songs. She's done albums this way that are um, dedicated to the music of Robert Johnson, Sun House, Book of White, Mississippi John Hurt, and her most recent one is called A Woman's Soul, and it's a tribute to the recordings of Bessie Smith. It's very cool. Check that out. Uh, Rory is a New Yorker growing up in the heart of the folk and blues scene of the 1960s. Her dad, Alan Block, was a bit of a bohemian and ran a, a sandal and leather shop in New York's West Village. And musicians and artists would drop by all the time. So she grew up around the likes of people like Peter Rowan, John Sebastian, and Bob Dylan apparently would drop in once in a while. Uh, when she was pretty young, she met Stefan Grossman, who I'm aware of through his 
instructional guitar books and uh, recordings. And I'm sure many of you, if you're involved in learning guitar anytime from 1980 to now, would know the name Stefan Grossman. And uh, when they were both youngsters, he introduced Rory to the guitar playing of Mississippi John Hurt and Sunhouse and some of the other Delta Blues players. She got deeply into that music and studied and transcribed it pretty obsessively. She moved out to California with Grossman and they started performing around the coffeehouse scene in, in Berkeley, California. Then in the 80s, she signed with um, Rounder Records and that's where her string of early albums starts. She also recently published a book, uh, this is a few years back, I guess, but uh, fairly recently, and it's called When a Woman Gets the Blues. And you can get info on that and all her latest recordings and her older recordings, which I still really dig, uh, and her upcoming shows and tours and all that information at roryblock.com. Uh, you know, one of the cool things that I've been learning as I go through these conversations is the different ways in which people feel inspired to work and come to their final completed recordings. Rory is someone who has a pretty unique way of working, and honestly, it's almost the polar opposite of how I'm used to working. But I find it fascinating how different people and different kinds of personalities approach the process. I won't explain what she does here because she and I get into that process of hers in detail throughout the conversation. But I'll just say that I found her approach to be pretty interesting and unusual to somebody like me. And you'll be hearing that conversation in just a couple of minutes. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. Uh, you can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page, and right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, also, this year we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca, podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union Tube and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Let me just dive right in here. I've listened to a lot of your music dating back into the 90s. Uh, and then uh, I know that what you've been doing lately is uh, a number of things to do with your mentor series, where you're dipping mm -hmm. into the music of people like Mississippi John Hurt, Skip James, Reverend, Reverend Gary Davis, and the new mm -hmm. one, Bessie Smith. So I know that you've played a lot of that material over the years as well. And it's been a part of your repertoire before, but maybe you could tell me a little bit about how diving into these people's repertoire in the way that you're doing it for these projects is like a, 
a very deep and intense thing. And I'm just wondering, like, when I, I know if I, you know, take a little break from Mississippi John Hurd and don't listen to him for a couple of years, then I come back to him, I sort of discover new levels of of intricacy and things like that with him. Um, has that happened for you? And maybe you could just talk about diving into these people's repertoire in an extra deep way to do these tributes. Right. Um, that's, a, that's an excellent point that you're making. And, and there's a quick yes to that, and I'll go into greater detail. Let me just mention that the Mentor Series 1, the premise was uh, tributes to blues, rediscovered blues masters who I had met in person. So that was the oh, entire... Okay feature of the first six mentors uh, in, that, in that group was uh, everyone, uh, Mississippi John Hurt, Skip James, Fred McDowell, Reverend Gary Davis, Sunhouse, and Booker White, who I had all met when they were rediscovered, and they came through Greenwich Village, where I was raised, and I got to meet them through guitar player and, and my first boyfriend, Stephen Grossman. I mean, we were like in our teens at the time. And all this great stuff was going on in New York City, and Stefan knew everybody. So, you know, he would he would be able to just say, hey, Mississippi John Hurt's been rediscovered, let's go see him. And then we'd walk into the back room. And then we'd visit, you know, visit Mississippi John Hurt at his home and, uh, and, and, and Skip James, unfortunately, in the hospital and Reverend Gary Davis in his home. And some house came to Stefan's parents' house, and we were able to visit there and in back rooms. So there was significant... Amazing. And, and wonderful time spent with those, some of the most, uh, you know, influential blues masters of, of all. And they happened to be coming through the Greenwich Village area. I happened to grow up there. So it was like good fortune, extreme good fortune to be at the right place at the right time. So that was the basis of the Mentor Series, which I'm now calling Mentor Series 1. Okay. Mentor Series 2, is, if you could say, the big umbrella for the Mentor Series is not people I met in person because Bessie Smith and I did not meet. But what <laughs> yeah. my new my new theme is power women of the blues. And that is going to be tributes to my favorite of the early influential founding, you know, fantastic blues women who inspired me. So that's kind of the new premise, the power women of the blues CD. And but it doesn't include did I meet that person. Uh, okay, I got Which you. The, uh, first so who, one, the first one did, yeah. Who have you got your sights set on as far as uh, what might be coming up in that series then? Well, there are a lot of choices. That's the most yep. um, realistic thing I can say. And I'm still, first of all, we just came out with the Bessie Smith tribute. And, that, and people say, well, why did you choose that? And it was a no-brainer because she just was one of my all-time favorites. But there are many that I love dearly, and it's hard to pick, but I just felt like Bessie Smith was was just the first artist that just jumped out like you got to do it, Bessie, you know. So, so powerful. Uh, I don't know yet who I'm going to do next, but I have about 30 names on a piece of paper. And I'm like, it's, it's all going to be a matter of what feels right. Yeah. So I, but I didn't answer your other question about what happens when you uh, re, revisit the music years later, and you're 100% correct that you hear things that you didn't hear before. And when I do a tribute album, I want to do it justice. And I want to do, you know, I want to capture as much of the essence that as I can. And so, you know, I'm a person who wants to crack the code. You know, that's kind of what I did with my Robert Johnson tribute. And I really want to know what's at the heart of it, not just, um, 
you know, my own version, but I want to know what did they do. And once I know Mm -hmm. that, then I can build on it and make it be me now added to that. So, but I always hear amazing things. I always go, oh my God, that's even more fabulous, more deep, more deep, more skilled, more intense than I than I even expected it to be as great as I always knew it was. There's right. always that deeper level, like you, you, you put your finger right on it. There's that deeper level that you sometimes need to hear it again when you're trying to decipher it. I think we, I think um, Mississippi John Hurt is is one of the like like yeah. a, a, attacking the Reverend Gary Davis. You know, going into it that it's going to be incredibly complex and difficult. But Mississippi John Hurt is sort of deceptively complex. That is exactly right, and I I talk about that because there's a lot of people who honor the great Mississippi John Hurt, and I'm glad that they do. And and all of it is quality. It's all good. But when you actually listen to him playing, you go, hey, now, wait a minute. His syncopation and his additional notes that he throws in there and the energy and the drive, you don't hear that. You don't hear, he's got something that is just genius level and it's, it's greater than a quick listen may reveal. Yeah, it, yeah, totally. it, it, It's just so deep. If if we just jump right into the Bessie Smith record, since it's the the latest one that you've done, mm-hmm. um, let's just talk about the process a little bit. Like I know that you, there's a lot of overdubbing that you've done on on the record. Yeah. Um, can you can you tell me about how you approached it? Did you get like one live performance of you singing and playing, and then embellish that, or what was your process like for making no. this new record? No, first of all, I've been um, as organic as the music that I choose to honor and the, the, that I normally play in a very organic way. Generally speaking, um, I I have been working with Pro Tools since it was first before it was even released on the market. It was called Sound Tools, and it was being beta tested by my then friend and engineer, brilliant computer guy who unfortunately is not still in this world. He he died of cancer years ago, but but at the time he knew about everything before he was on the cutting edge. So he introduced me to it, and we started working with it. And as much as I'm not really a computer person, I, I became a computer person with the program because right. it was everything that I needed to do, and we were able to do it right. You know, they didn't even have laptops. <laughs> I'm talking a long time ago. So sure. here's what I like to do. And this is my own process, and I feel very excited about it because I know that it gives back. It, it yields a more organic sound because it is more organic. What I do is I listen to the bed. I, I choose a song. I listen to the, I listen to the music and then Rob, I sit down. This is where I take my, you know, wooden boxes, storage tubs, rubber, uh, rubber mallets, uh, metal, wooden spoons, plastic <laughs> salad servers. I take everything loose that I can come up with to see what the coffee cans. And I start, playing, you know, playing tempos. I use the guitar. I call it guitar bongos. I start doing tempos with my hand on the guitar. Whatever sounds right for that song. I just experiment. Rob's recording the different sounds, like try this, try this. And we get something that works. And then I start by creating a simple click. Not, and it's not a click. It's not a click. I'm playing the tempo. I listen to the song. And then he turns the track off, and I just play 
with that tempo in mind, something simple. And then okay. we use that as the basic click for the entire, you know, that's our rhythm is my hand played time. So you do that and then loop it and then play to that. On top of that, I put anything that I want. I always start with the guitar part. So I'm always going to start with the acoustic basic track yeah. designed to be as close to the original. In the case of Sun House, I didn't use any click track. There's some occasions where there is no need because I wasn't going to be overdubbing. But in the case of something like this, where you know you're recreating a band arrangement, then you really do yep. need to overdub. So what I did was I started first with a guitar, and that was a challenge because I had I don't read music, so I had to be transcribing a uh, you know a series of in, incredibly jazzy, sophisticated chord changes uh, mm -hmm. outside outside of the of the normal country blues format. Such right. as it such as it may be, it's a very free format. I grant you, but it was very different than that. So I. At first, I felt a little overwhelmed, like, oh, my, how am I going to do this? But I got into the swing of it, and I would first do the uh, root guitar, and then I put on a bass part. Now, what I literally started doing is turning the guitar way below pitch, and I played it oh, the way cool. you, when you see a bass player play with two fingers in their right hand, and they kind of do a little snap and a kind of percussive attack. I did it that way, but I did it kind of low-key, because otherwise my strings would have sounded like rubber bands. But Rob, <laughs> Rob put a beautiful audio on it. You know, everything that I did, he would do something. I would just go and leave him to work on it. And I would uh -huh. come back and I'd say, wow, that, you know, everything on this recording was really magical, the way he treated things. So he enhanced the bass to bring out the bassy frequencies. He enhanced yeah. the percussion to to, uh, you know, not that much with the percussion until I started adding snare parts. And then we did use, you know, we trans we uh, transferred things to a captured sound that I wanted, but it was on what I played. And absolutely, you can't quantize to a hand-played click track that's like bongos. You can't, <laughs> that you yeah, can't do. Yeah, yeah you right. can only click to a, a known click at a specific increment. So that's not what we had to work with. Anyway, after the bass part, then I would almost invariably put on a second guitar part, which I do for depth and thickness in a different tuning. You know, yep, so it's yep. nice to put something on in a different tuning. Do you use a different guitar, too? No, not always, but in fact, definitely not always. But I have uh -huh. three, or, three or four guitars that I can choose between, but they're all Martins, so they all have a uh, related sound. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and they're all uh, three uh, signature models and one uh, earlier one, an OM28V, that, that they gave me before the signature models were created. And they have, they have different sounds, but they're, they're Martins, so they, they have a, a you know, relationship to each other. So course, yeah. after that, when, when I have that, then I start with slide parts, and then I put slide overdubs on, and that's really... I, uh, honestly, I, I've been really loving that. Kind of like this really interesting bed to work on top of. And then uh -huh. and then I enhance the drum track a little bit, play more parts. You know, I so, say, you know what, I'm, I'm hearing a snare on this. So I go back and on, I, most of my, my snare hits were played on hat boxes with a wooden spoon. Okay. And so then I would just go and I would smack them where I heard them. And then he would... Uh, you know, make it sound like a snare. In some cases, we just left it sounding like a box, like on uh, 
whatever the first, oh, here, here's the record right here. Um, do your duty. There is no replacement of any audio. It's just the sounds that I got. Same thing with uh, kind uh, kitchen man and stuff like that. But then as we rolled, we started getting more playful with our options. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, more creative. Yeah. So that's yeah. basically it. And the last thing that I do is the vocal. Under different circumstances, Sun House or even a Fred McDowell song, you might want the vocal at the same time or you might want it as an overdub. In this scenario, you have to, I mean, the way I'm doing this, this is like the vocal is last. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Uh, and so with the slide parts, are you kind of, are you winging it? Are you making it up as you go? Or have you have you arranged uh, a bunch of parts to work together? Never arranged. Never okay. arranged. I'm not that type of musician. I, I mean, if there's anything that anybody else tries to get me to do that frustrates them, it's practice. I don't practice. I don't have set <laughs> I don't have plans. I just... And Rob knows that he has to record me the minute I walk through the door of the room that we're working in. He has the house set up as like different rooms, wires are going you know, around the doorway. It's like, that's where I'm going to record. This is yeah. the mix room. That one, that room is for vocals, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I, um, there's never a plan. There's never uh-huh. a plan. I mean, I can't even tell you who I'm doing next. So that's the way I work best. He knows that as soon as I, start tuning the guitar he has to be ready and he didn't like that at first and he would say oh you know you're not giving me any chance to get a sound and i'm going like but the best performance is going to happen right now and i'll never be able to recreate it that's the way i work so with the overdubbed parts uh were you at all conscious of like trying to replicate like horn lines or anything from the original recordings or was it just stuff that you were uh feeling at the time that was that, that you were improvising after a while I didn't try. And I did try with um, the first couple of songs. Again, I, I started out one way, and then it just so happens that Jazz Bo Brown from Memphis, I'm going to tell you something interesting about how the, the slide parts sounded like horns, but I didn't do it on purpose. However, oh. there were certain... No, I didn't do it on purpose. I'll tell you what had Remind me to tell you about that one. Okay. Oh, Weeping Willow, there's a horn that goes in a... Well, in the intro, and then it goes, the horn goes... It answers the vocal. Well, I went down to that river. The horn goes. So I thought, well, surely I'll put those in. I didn't end up doing that. I was going to actually reproduce those amazing lines that the horns did. But after a while, I just, I just kept rolling. And it's almost like it sounded like I was doing that, but it somehow interpreted as if I was trying to make it sound like horns. Now, um, Jasper Brown from Memphis Town, here's what happens. I do a solo. Then I do, you know, I don't think I do more than three or four takes because it gets, it gets too complicated. You know, it's like after a while, you're like, what take was that one? You know, line them all up. Are they all going to show on the screen at one time? It's too much if you can't see all your tracks and one comp track on the same screen. If you have to cycle up and down for 30 tracks, for me... I've gone overboard. So I like yeah. to do three to four takes. And um, what happened was we listened to one, and that, that one was cool, and then we listened to two, and that one was cool. I'm like, all of a sudden I said, I wonder what it would sound like to play these together. I'm all about that. Play the whole shebang together. <laughs> Just know? stack them on who, top of each other. Who cares if it's like, because it has a whole <laughs> new energy. It's like, 
whoa, what is happening here? So we played them together and like, holy cannoli, they sound like they were meant to be that way. It just happened that you, you'll notice there are some, there are some slide lines where you, you hear it's unison with another doing the same, but mostly they're harmonies. Yeah, that, yeah. Just ha- that just happened. That just happened. So it was just about doing something different every time. No plans, no arrangement. Yeah, crazy. It just was what happened to work. I have found that on my recordings multiple times, which is that if I do three or four takes, they actually end up sounding like they, they're, they're meant to be layers of each other. You know, they, they sound like they're arranged together and they sound good a lot of the time, not all the time. That's a really interesting fluke that that happened. Because I, I was going to pick out that tune because when I heard it, it did definitely sound like that was something that you had sat down and arranged. But there you go. You know, I didn't, I didn't think about it until the reviews kept saying that I had um, had this horn arrangement thing happening. And I thought, what are they referring to? And then I listened to, Gimme, <laughs> uh, to uh, Jasbo and I thought... I get it. It does sound like horns, you know, but it wasn't yeah. specifically an intention in that song. So what about repertoire when you get into something like this, like in the case of Bessie Smith, it's a pretty deep repertoire, but it's not bottomless. Uh, were you ever like a total hardcore collector at, with with the old blues and jazz stuff? Like, did you have those kind of things to go back on or were you just sort of going through what you could find like on iTunes and stuff like that? Like, how did you come up with the song? Well, let, let me go back to your the first part of your question, which was, was I ever a hardcore collector? No, but I knew hardcore collectors. When I was 14, <laughs> I yeah, in New York City and also Washington, D.C., but I was more connected to the New York City scene. There were a, a handful of people that covered every base. There were the record collectors. There were the people who went through the South knocking on doors and asking people, have you ever heard of Mississippi John Hurt? Do you know where he is now? You know, and seeking to find and finding the ones whose music I um, did tributes to. And then there were uh, the, the musicians you know, so there was like every base was covered, but it we yeah. wouldn't have been able to do what we did without the people who were finding the, the records. And so they were the collectors, Sam Chapman, I think, or Sam Charters. Uh, and, uh, oh, geez, Stefan Grossman knows all their names because he was friends with everybody. And I would simply benefit by hearing everything as it was rediscovered. The, the crowd that we were hanging out with, again, small, counted, but counted on two hands, less than 10 people probably. Uh, we would say, oh, you know, a new Charlie Patton master has been rediscovered, a new this one, a new that one. No one else on earth had a copy of it. I mean, it was like the only known copy. Record company archives had deleted it years earlier, thinking no one would ever care again. So they were really doing this immensely important job of archiving and and re uh, retrieving music that would have been gone forever. So we would get the information that this record had been found. And within, you know, a very short period of time, Stephanie would have a reel-to-reel tape with all the latest rediscovered LPs. And, oh, cool. and we would, and I would listen to them. I, in fact, he lent me a reel-to-reel tape recorder that was like high technology in those days. And I had in, in a big old pair of headphones and I would sleep listening to tapes of this rediscovered music all night long, you know. That's what I was doing when I was 14. And then when I was 15, I had already, quote, run away from home, left the house. Actually, I, it was truly 
real running away from home. I was gone, and Stefan and I went to California together and continued, you know, this this journey, um, meeting blues players, collecting old instruments. Stefan mm-hmm. went into pawn shops, and uh, then we got to Berkeley, and Fred McDowell showed up. I don't know why he was in Berkeley, but he just knocked on the door. And, oh, and, and then then we were in in the land of the record companies that were being established. That was another angle of what was going on in the in those early days. Not only the people yeah. finding and collecting the records, finding the early musicians, but then people who founded their own record labels. And uh, they they started releasing the music that was rediscovered right. and start putting out compilations. So that's where and then the then the musicians themselves. So uh, you you really couldn't reproduce the magic of that time period. It was unbelievable. Yeah, that's an amazing an, yeah. an amazing period of discovery where uh-huh. you know it was bef- before the big days of reissues where all that stuff is available again and you really had to yeah. dig for it. You had to put your work in. So you said like and you said how do I pick out material? for each recording. So in the case of Bessie Smith, I had already recorded some of her tunes. You know, I listened Uh to her music all the time when I was 14 and 15, and I already had a number of her songs. Jazz Bo Brown was the one that was like in my head for years, like what a great song that is. I already knew about that one. I didn't really, oh yeah, I had heard Pigfoot too. That was another great one. And I never heard Need a Little Sugar in my bowl. I'd heard of it but I wasn't familiar with it. I didn't hear it when I was younger. Down in the Dumps I recorded and had heard for years and years Black Mountain, Weeping Willow. Uh, Never heard it on Revival Day or Empty Bed. So the only three tracks here that I wasn't fully familiar with and already singing were Need a Little Sugar in My Bowl, Revival Day, and Empty Bed. The rest of them were familiar to me, so it was not complicated to pick them. It was like they were right Right there, ready to go. And the three that you'd never done or played before, how did you how did you uh, rustle those ones up? Okay, well, when I'm whenever I'm doing a tribute album, we put all the material that we can collect, and it's in the past it was Stefan, can you please send me a compilation of this artist's <laughs> full work? But now it's the internet, so right, or, right. or Holger, Holger has sent me you know like reissues, so I can just get a full picture. When we first started hearing say Song House or whatever. I had a smaller group of his songs and what I heard him do live to go on, but then now you have the internet and you can go, oh, okay, he also recorded these other five tunes that, that he didn't play so much when I met him. So we go and we collect everything in one place and we just go on down the line and I just know the things that jump out at me. I mean, it's obvious. So, it, okay, I'd say, oh, that one, we'll do that one. So we mm-hmm. write it down on a, you know, we call it down you have to go for the ones that really jump out as unique, strong, varied. I pick tempo variation, subject matter variation, key key variation, approach variation. You've kind of opened up a a couple of cans of worms here that I I, I do want to... explore with you uh mm-hmm. but maybe we can maybe we can break them up without uh, overlapping too much because i don't want to gloss over them uh one of them is some of these um 
original generation of blues artists that you met. Um, yeah. But first, but first, can can you just tell me a little bit about your personal experience with growing up? Um, just about like I know that your dad was involved in the the folk scene in in New York mm-hmm. City, and maybe you could just talk about you growing up in that environment and what got you into music and specifically playing guitar in the first place. Well. My parents were musicians, and there was a folk scene going on in the village. So I have a book called When a Woman Gets the Blues. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it online. You can get it on my website. You can get it at our shows. Turns out, I called Pete Seeger after I had written the book and had this great conversation with him where he filled in all these gaps that I hadn't known about, one of which is that my dad used to rent a room from Pete Seeger's wife's parents. Okay, we'll run that by again. Pete Seeger's wife, Toshi Ota, Toshi Ota, her parents owned a brownstone on McDougal Street in Greenwich Village. And before I was born, my dad rented a room from them. They rented the upstairs floors. And I'm going to digress into a funny little story, but it is the first chapter of my book. It's called Pete's Blessing. But it turns out Pete told me that uh, that another floor was rented by the cartoonist for the New Yorker magazine. His name was William Steig. And oh, then, wow. then uh, Pete told me that my mother had had an affair with Bill Steig. I mean, just the things that you really? run into. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, this is before I was born. So, you know, <laughs> when my parents were like young and wild and racing about in Greenwich Village. But he also, he told me that in the basement of the Ota's house on weekends, they'd have music parties and they would have, you know, the young Bob Dylan and, and uh, Pete, obviously, because he was yeah. living there and Woody Guthrie and, you know, Theodore Bikel and Josh White and all these wonderful luminaries would come down and just jam. And my, that explained why my parents were always saying well over the weekend that they had been singing with and they, mention one of those people. And this wasn't unusual. Here I am, two, three, four, five, six years old. And it doesn't seem, I think everybody's singing with, with uh, you know, these people on the weekend. And I don't realize how famous and how amazing and how legendary some of the people were. I just thought that everybody was a musician, you know, because this was right. They were just, village. And everybody they were just people that you were, that they were like friends of your mom and dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, my parents were both musicians. My mother was a wonderful singer. Oh, this all came about because someone, uh, because when I was writing the book, I remembered that my mother had auditioned for the Weavers. And then somebody said, well, you know, call Pete Seeger and ask him about your mother and the Weavers. So that's how the whole phone call to Pete started. And he, ah, he okay. knew, but he knew me and he knew my dad, you know, and he said, Rory, he said, your dad used to live in my house. So, you know, it was an amazing conversation. And then at the end, it, he was 90. Pete was 90 yeah. when I talked to him. And I, I said, how are you doing? I said, congratulations on your 90th birthday. And he said, I'm doing great, but I'm u- losing my memory a little. And then he went on to say, at the end of the call, he said, you know, Rory, when your name comes up, I just say Rory Block. She's the best at what she does. And then there was this pause and he said, but I just can't remember what it is that you do. So I love, to, I love to tell that story in, in a live <laughs> concert setting, and it's really fun. The bottom line is that um, my mom had auditioned for the Weavers, but she was pregnant with my older sister, and she would have had to tour. So she backed out of that at the last minute, but oh. that that 
folk music, everybody's a musician involvement was around me throughout my, you know, early childhood. So, of mm -hmm. course, I was a musician. Of course, I was a musician. Everybody was a musician. My dad had a sandal shop called Allen Block Sandal Shop on West 4th Street, where two doors away, Bob Dylan lived. Uh, John Lennon had a place a half a block away. It was just really like a hub for incredible musicians. And Joan uh -huh. Baez was starting out at coffee shops. And, you know, I mean, everywhere you went, and John Sebastian was coming in and out of the shop. So the musical environment was, was just there. I mean, it wasn't even as if I picked it. It picked me. Mm -hmm. And so... And yeah. At that point, at that point, were you playing already, or were you just kind of soaking it all up? Well, both. I mean, I first I was given classical recorder lessons when I was probably about seven or eight years old, and I, I, they began to realize that I resonated with music and I loved music and I probably was singing a lot, and then I picked up a guitar when I was ten and I started picking out little runs and notes and driving everybody crazy. And my first <laughs> big, big accomplishment was the bass notes to Froggy Went a Courtin, which is, you know, Froggy Went a Courtin, he did, bum, 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 bum. that was like, oh, wait a minute, look at this, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> and everybody was, was wishing I would practice in the other room. But that was really the beginning. And then when I was 12, I started backing up my dad, who was a country fiddle player. Oh, and I started cool. playing Carter family style flat picking. And so that was kind of the first thing where I was officially playing. Yeah. So it just was a completely natural transition from um, playing with uh, others to uh, recording with Stefan and yes. to just. What was that process like for you of like playing, you know, Carter style stuff behind your dad to, mm -hmm. uh, I guess, like, it sounds like the next thing that happened was Stefan Grossman started playing you all this old blues stuff and you got really into that. How was your progress as a musician? How did that happen? Like, were you sitting down and like figuring stuff out from those reel to reels and, and stuff like that on yes. your own or were you being taught? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I got, I got adept at doing that, at transcribing uh -huh. music to the point where Stefan, who will openly tell you what I'm saying is correct, this is not a secret and it's not something against Stefan, who's a brilliant guitar player and a brilliant teacher and a brilliant transcriber of music. But somehow that was my specialty. So there, okay. were, there were even times when he'd sit me down in front of a reel-to-reel tape and say, can you work on, you know, what do you think this is and how do you think, what t tuning do you think this is? And so I was really way into that, you know, transcribing. Oh, cool. Do you remember any particular songs or pieces that, that for you were like real um, milestones like that you got under your fingers and you were like, oh my God, I can do that? Yeah, yeah, like breakthroughs. I remember um, working for a long time on, or not a long time even, I take that back, but I, I worked intensively on Willie Brown's, uh, it might have been Stone Pony, one of the Willie Brown songs that's in regular tuning, it's not in an open tuning, but I was sitting in uh, an outside in Colorado. We had started, that, that was me running away from home. We had hitchhiked and gotten all the way to Colorado mm -hmm. and stayed with some friends along the road. And I'm sitting outside in the high altitudes feeling very dizzy. And I'm working on this uh, Willie Brown Song and I'm thinking, how do I now add vocals to this? Because it was a complex guitar part. Right. And I worked on section by section. I did one little section at a time, and I worked on separating the vocal from the guitar, because there's nothing worse 
than a great guitar player, not saying I'm one, but I'm saying a competent and good guitar player who cannot separate their vocal from the guitar. Right. When I teach, right. when I give people lessons, that's the first thing I teach them if they want to know about vocals, is you have to have your vocal move independently, otherwise you sound like Pat Boone doing Robert <laughs> Johnson. And, you, you know, you don't want that. It's you want your thought. vocal... Yeah, you want your vocal independent of the rhythm of the guitar. If that's the first thing you have to work on, because again, there's a lot of nice guitar parts out there and a lot of great guitar players, but not as many singers who have the level of singing that they do of guitar playing. And that in in a way, uh, it detracts because because when they're performing, as soon as they start singing, if they haven't worked on separating the vocal from the guitar then it's going to yes. be trash. I think right. you know what I'm talking about. That is something that, that I think at some point in, in, in your life as a musician, you have to like really break it down. Yeah. And then, and then that helps you just be able to do it naturally. But, but spending that time, like breaking those things apart is really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You split off from home, you take off, you and Stefan Grossman are, are ripping across the country and end up in California. Right. Uh, did you have yeah. like a, did you have like a, destination in mind or were you just randomly driving from point A to point B to see what No, we happen? didn't have a destination in mind, but I, but all of the places we went and the people we saw were friends of Stefan's. I was quite young. He yeah. was a little bit older. Like literally we're talking maybe four years in the age difference, which at when one is fifteen yeah. and the other is nineteen, it seems That's like huge. You know, it seems like the, the, the great divide. But in fact, you know, he was very responsible. He had wonderful parents. My family was a broken home. I, I really attached myself to him and his parents and his family. They became my family. Otherwise, I, I don't know what would have happened to me. They were wonderful to me. They, they let me stay there all the time. Otherwise, I would have been, you know, a little waste with no place to go. But they, they took right. care of me. And so did Stefan. Stefan nice. was, was uh, very capable and as I say in my book, he was very kind. It's nice to look back on someone and be able to say they didn't have a mean bone in their body. And he took us to Berkeley. We ended up in Berkeley, California, where we stayed with Ed Denson, who founded um, Tacoma Records. Oh, with John Fahey. Yeah, yeah, John Fahey. He was in town, and we saw him, and Fred McDowell showed up at, at uh, Dick Waterman's house. Uh, not okay. Dick Waterman's house, uh, Ed, Ed Denson's house. And yeah. that's... Like I said, I don't know what he was doing in Berkeley, but he stayed with us for a while, and I wrote a chapter for Fred McDowell. And we did some performing at a place called the Jabberwocky Cafe, and that, that's where, as I say in my book, I'm playing probably Big Road Blues by Tommy Johnson. I had really spent, t- all my time was spent transcribing music at this point. It was all I did. And wow. I'm up there playing, and I, I'm probably still 14 or 15, maybe, let, let's say I'm 15, and someone in the house jumps up and says, she plays like a man. And I thought, what are they talking about? You know, there is no such thing. You're just a human being and you play. But see, I never saw categories. I never saw myself as my age, my, 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 I, I just did not see outward categories. And I never divided people that way. I, and so I didn't feel like I had to explain myself. I just right. played what I loved, whatever it was. Yeah, Country Joe and the Fish were in Berkeley. Uh, uh, 
some at some festival that happened at the at the college there at the university there, and um, Tom Paxton was there, and then there was uh, a wonderful guitar shop owned by a guy named John Lundberg, and a lot of people hung out there. Was that Subway Guitars? No, it was probably just called John Lundberg Guitars. Oh, okay. And, you okay. know, yeah, yeah, on University Avenue. So we spent a fairly good amount of time in Berkeley, and a lot of people came through, just like Greenwich Village, really. Uh-huh. You know, a lot of great musicians came through town, a lot of great yeah, musicians it was a- lived there. It was just a hub. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Do you have any... um good remembrances of hanging out with uh, Fred McDowell like he was quite a character did you do you remember Well I won't give away I won't give away the chapter too much in my book but there was definitely interaction with Fred McDowell you have to okay. get the book <laughs> <laughs> That that sort of brings me to another thing which is um your first hand experiences with um mm-hmm. some of the this generation of of blues performers which mm-hmm. I've always found fascinating and I've spoken with um uh, Yorma uh, Kaukinen, yeah. uh mm-hmm. about his his experiences with <clears throat> with Reverend Gary Davis, um, mm-hmm. and and uh, also that's come up a, a couple other times with with other people I've spoken to. Um, mm-hmm. Now, so the Reverend was kind of um, just like an incredibly an incredibly advanced musician, but also yeah. like a very generous person. Um, yeah. Now. What was your what was your relationship with him? Did you actually take lessons from him, or were you just kind of hanging out with him, or what was your experience? Okay, Stefan was taking lessons. I just happened to have a copy of my book right here, so I'm going to see what I called that chapter. Stefan was taking lessons, and I was hanging out. Here it is, Reverend Gary Davis. I was hanging out, and I was auditing, you might say, and and Reverend Gary Davis was witty, and he was he was very sharp. And he would really, he didn't say, take the second finger of your left hand and put it on the third fret of the G string and slide to the fifth fret. There was mm-hmm. no information given on that level. There was just, this is how you play it. Now watch. Now you do it. <laughs> and that's how, that's how he did it. And if you couldn't catch on right away, he would really roast you. But Stefan was good at dealing with that. And they, they really loved each other. They resonated, they laughed, you know, there was, uh-huh. it was like being there at a roast. They would just go at each other, but in a wonderfully good-spirited way. And, and Annie, um, Reverend Gary Davis's wife, was, was nearby, and she would stop him if he tried to play a blues song because, you know, he was a, a preacher and he was not right. supposed to do the music of the devil, in quotes. Uh-huh. And she just made sure that he kept it 
on the straight and narrow, you know. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. In the meantime, Stefan has uh, some some wonderful tapes that maybe he'll be someday. I don't know what, what the plans are for those. You'd have to ask him. Yeah. But yeah. Where, where Gary Davis did sing blues. You sure, know, like Candyman yeah. Candy is a blues song. Uh-huh. Candyman yeah. is not gospel. But Stefan told me recently why, I'm sure Stefan's written about this and talked about it too, but Gary Davis said why he whispered when he did Candyman and, and Dave Van Romp did a great version of Candyman and he had that same whisper thing that he obviously mm-hmm. learned from Reverend Gary Davis, which is, you know, Candyman, so right, you yeah. know, this little whisper. And, it, and uh, Stefan said, well, you know, Gary Davis said that if you're going to say something evil, it's better if you say it quietly. <laughs> I like it. That's good advice, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So, you know, it was just it was really just a learning time for me as a younger person. Yeah. I was very, very shy, very shy. I would never have been confident enough to, to chime in because we're we're talking like lightning fast wit and uh mm-hmm. and me just being an auditor as a shy person. But I did speak at, at greater length by far to some house. I did, for some reason didn't feel quite as shy with him, even though I was always in awe of these blues players because I knew who they were and I knew how great yeah. they were. And I had already been working on Mississippi John Hurt songs before I met him. I had already been transcribing and working on Sun House, working on Robert Johnson and quite a bit of music. Um, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Blind Boy Fuller. I had already been listening when I met these players and so it was all the more awesome to go, oh my God, you know, I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't, if I could live that time again, you know, amen, nobody can, if I could live that time again, wouldn't I do more to find out more? Yes, I would, but at the time, uh-huh. it seemed like it was going to last forever. I cannot even wrap my head around that, like as being a, you know, somebody that I, I grew up loving and learning the music of Mississippi John mm-hmm. Hurt, but he was dead mm-hmm. by the time I was born. So it was never, right. it was, it was never a thing where I would ever run into a guy like that. But you actually like had this experience of working on these people's music and then there they were, or you were at and their house. Them. It's so crazy. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Um, when, I'm glad I decided one day, I just said, you know what? I have to write this stuff down. And people were saying that to me, you should write a book. I'm like, well, I can't, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not an author. I'm, I'm uh you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a writer. I wouldn't know how to do it. But in, come to find out that when you put your mind to it and you just start remembering things that you, sure. you can get on a roll and that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did the meeting with Sun House come about? Like, where did you, where did you meet him? Okay, well, at Stefan's Stephen, parents' house. Um, Stefan, again, he knew everybody. He knew Dick Waterman. Dick Waterman later was Bonnie Ray's manager. Great guy. And now he's doing a lot of uh, historical preservation. He, he was a great photographer as well as a manager. And he was the one, uh, he was one of those who traveled around looking for known blues acts okay. who had recorded in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and they had sort of gone underground. And then here we all are in Greenwich Village listening to these hard-to-find records, and people obviously started saying, geez, I wonder if, you know, some house is still alive. What about Mississippi John Hurt? And and the, this small group of people, Dick Waterman was one of them, a pivotal player, who realized that that you know no one had spoken of that person's 
guess per se, and that it was really a good possibility that they might still be alive. So right. thanks go thanks to people like Dick Waterman who went searching for people and they found some house. And then they would bring them into New York City for concerts and elsewhere, and they, they would do concerts at the Newport Folk Festival and any yeah. number of different festivals. But New York, again, was one of the hubs. And yeah. um, So, would, yeah, they, would, so some, would somebody, like, put them up and they would stay in New York yeah. for months at a time? They, Dick Waterman brought Sunhouse to Stefan's parents' house, and, and Sunhouse and I sat together and talked and played music, and I asked him about Robert Johnson. You see, nobody knew who Robert Johnson was in 1964. Sunhouse didn't think, well, I'll just drop this name and they'll be amazed. No, because <laughs> how many people knew about uh, Robert Johnson in 1964? As far as he knew, nobody knew That's who crazy. Robert Johnson was. He died way long time ago, and now I'm rediscovered, and I'm sitting in a living room in New York City, and, of course, no one knows who Robert Johnson is, and that was accurate. Like, literally a handful of people were... And some of the British uh, rock bands, like the Rolling Stones, and probably like the Beatles and a lot of uh, interesting musicians in on the other side of the ocean, they also knew about Robert Johnson, Eric Clapton, knew. Sure. You know, but but we're talking about a very small number of people in 1964 yeah. actually knew the music of people like Robert Johnson. And so I'm sitting there with some house. And I, I asked him about Robert Johnson, and he tells me in this offhand way, he says, well, I taught Robert Johnson how to play guitar. And oh he's, not telling me, he's not telling me to impress me, because nobody knows, in his view, nobody knows who Robert Johnson is. Robert Johnson was just the new kid in town who wanted to be like Sunhouse. And Amazing. Sunhouse was a little older, and, and Sunhouse was a more established player, and Robert Johnson was just coming yeah. along. You know, so he, Sunhouse told me simple, true things without any embellishment and without any ulterior motive, like, now this will be impressive, because as far as he knew, and and in terms of reality, really, Robert Johnson was an unknown person at that point. Right. That's amazing to think about that, because now yeah. he's so, so iconic. But yeah, you're right. At that point, it, it was... He was still undiscovered in right. general. And, and, yeah. uh, but he did say, I played music for him. I played Willie Brown's song, Future Blues. That was one that... And he said at the time, Sunhouse looked around and said, where did you learn to play like this? You know, because if you think about it, it would be surprising. Yep. It would be surprising. And I think I've always been on the edge of being uh, on, ex on something unexpected because, again, I didn't see any division. I didn't see any reason, oh, you, you ought to stay with this category of music because people won't understand. I, yeah. I wasn't like that. I wasn't judging things like that. I wasn't computing any of that stuff. I just loved the music, and there you go. You do and pursue what you love, and mm -hmm. you should. And don't yeah. apologize to anybody. Yeah, yeah. Don't apologize for it because we're all in this thing together, and everybody including blues singers who oftentimes did pop music of the day when they were playing gigs sure. and everything. We're all passing it around back and forth. Fiddle players and old-time Appalachian country players knew a lot of the old blues players, and they passed music back and forth between them. Mississippi John Hurt used to talk about the fiddle player who lived nearby, who was a country player. And this is when they were, like, trading 
trading material, trading influences, yep. melting pot type of stuff. What do you think mm-hmm. some of these guys, but maybe like Sunhouse in particular, thought about the whole resurgence and the whole reinterest in their music? Did they were they excited by that, or did they just think it was weird and and Okay, I think I think surprise is the best way to put it. Not that it was weird or anything like that, but just surprise. I, I should say, as part of my don't apologize, love whatever you love, but give credit where credit is due. That's where I have always been extremely determined to always tell the original name of the original artist, where I got the material, who wrote it, who yeah. whose version I'm playing. I don't believe in trying to leave that part out. So I've always been meticulous with that. So at the same time as do what you love and don't apologize, just love what you love. But at the same time, give credit where credit is due. And then you've done the right thing. Then you can put some of your own energy into it as time goes by. I think we all know that more of us is added in because we find our own place, our own voice, our own style over time. You might not start out with as much of that and you might grow into it, but I've always been a um, meticulous, as as people like Bonnie Raitt, I think, are also, and maybe Maria Muldor too, we always talk about the history and the original writer to make sure that they are never, that no one's trying to usurp them. I've I've seen that done. And I and I'm always grieved by it. That's not yeah. what I want to do. That's not yeah. what. That's not my role and not my mission. No, I get it. Did a guy like Sunhouse? Did did he express yeah. how he felt yeah, about? Surprise. It's about surprise. Okay. I mean, he yeah. was surprised. The sense that I got is he was surprised. Mississippi John Hurt was surprised. I would <laughs> have to say uh, Skip James was surprised. They're probably surprised. These guys went like 30, 40 years in some cases, being completely unappreciated and unknown. Exactly. And suddenly they were like rock stars. Yes. And I think there was a sense of surprise. And I'm sure it was a good surprise. You know, I, uh-huh. I, I can't imagine it being something that one, I mean, we all want to be appreciated and we all deserve, uh, you know, some for your art, for what you do, it's good to be appreciated. So I think they, they understood that they were being celebrated and appreciated. And in that sense, the surprise probably quickly rolled over into just a good feeling mm-hmm. about about being honored. I think it was about honoring them after they were rediscovered. I think they began to see fairly quickly that yeah. people were, were honoring them. Okay. Interesting. Uh, here's a quick question that, that you may you may have the answer for that I've always wondered. So a guy like Mississippi John Hurt, he makes his records in the uh, like late 20s, early 30s, mm-hmm. uh, basically vanishes off the radar Mm-hmm. Um, until he's rediscovered in the mid to late '60s, did he keep mm-hmm. playing the whole time? Was he actively playing music in that in that forty year stretch? I mean, that's a very a large sweep and an unknown. Except to say that probably some did and some didn't. But um, I, when I was doing the Avalon tribute to Mississippi John Hurt, I got in yeah. touch with his great nephew um, Fred Bolden, who wrote a book about his great uncle, I think. I, I think I'm getting the connection correct. Maybe there's someone okay. out there who will, one of your listeners who will say that, that, that I think that was the connection. 
And Fred, a wonderful, wonderful human being, he wrote me many emails giving me many experiences that he had with, with Uncle, um, you know, with Uncle John coming over, his Uncle John coming to stay with them when he was growing up and having this beautiful experience of listening to his uncle playing music in the other room and, and or sitting with him, you know, but just the, the realization that this music was, was still there. Now, now he, he was just a little kid at the time. So, you know, I don't, I don't have the inside information on how much different players played over the years. Obviously, some stopped and had to kind of get back into it. But um, in the case of Mississippi John Hurt, judging by Fred's beautiful stories about how, how great it was listening to his uncle play, he was playing. Clearly, Mississippi John Hurt kept kept his music going. I'd just like to talk to you a little bit more about your own uh, playing and your own style, um, uh, particularly uh, a couple things. One one of them is your right hand has always been something that's been very magical to me. It's it's really kind of like I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but it's forceful, and you've got like you know a, there's a lot of power coming in through your guitar through your right hand. And I'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you developed as a player in that way and maybe who your biggest influences were as far as developing that rhythmic thing that's very singular to the way that you play. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's such an interesting subject, and I hope I I can remember all the aspects of that to answer. Uh, One is that my dad played claw hammer banjo when I was growing up, and that's Ah. how he played. He played, Ah, his foot would pound, and his hand would go slamming into the top of his instrument, and he played guitar like that, too, not playing blues, playing Uh kind of a uh, folk style, I guess, or a country style. But but claw hammer banjo has a percussive right hand, and I watched my dad. That was what he played before I picked up on the guitar was the banjo. And that early style of music had this something going on and so I translated that directly into the guitar so that's one thing then there was also watching Son House play and truly Son House was also slamming you know I I guess I knew I didn't question that if you were going to play this music the right way to do it was powerful you couldn't this was not a polite guitar arrangement this is like all out like you put your body into it if you even watch Mississippi John Hurt who wasn't playing fly but we talked about earlier how he was at another level of intensity than you even realize until you analyze it that he threw his body into his playing Mississippi John Hurt just played powerfully and when I teach people guitar the biggest challenge many times with guitar playing is getting people to play with enough power Mm -hmm. because a lot of times they play too tentatively, and then your music doesn't have all that you would want it to have. It's not about criticizing someone's music. It's about enhancing what they do by saying, listen, I want you to play louder. I want you sure. to put your body into it. I want you to not worry about buzzing. I want you to like put all of yourself, your physicality, your energy, and your, your spirit into throwing it into your strings, You know, throwing your whole body into this. And when that happens then you start to understand that that's the way the music is supposed to be played. Right. It's not, it's not this laid back, easy, easy going, unless you have an easy going laid back song specifically, but yeah, the way yeah. Soundhouse played, I mean, look at videos of Soundhouse. There were no videos of Soundhouse when I met Soundhouse. And if there were, they weren't, they weren't available. Someone had filmed him somewhere and, and that wasn't like something you could find because there was no internet. Yeah. 
you know, but I just had him in person. And when you saw him play, he just, his eyes rolled back in his head and his hand just came slamming down and the strings were snapped and his foot was pounding and he was hyperventilating. And that was the way it was done. Even if he was just playing in his living room or whatever, it would be just as intense. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was the way you played the music. You didn't play yeah. the music, like, way low-key. You weren't trying to, like, let people sleep in the other room. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know. Have you ever had any issues with your right hand? Like, have you ever had any damage or, like, like tendonitis or any problems? Totally have, have damage right now. And for a long, a long time, I had bleeding in my fingers where... Oh my God. I, I would get my finger and my nail, the string would go between my oh, nail sure. and my yep. finger. And then, you know, I, oh, I, it so happened painful. in, it's horrible. I was in Europe. Um, I used to tour Europe a lot, you know, uh-huh. I used to tour everywhere a lot, but I, I'm trying to take it easy, but it's not working because people keep sending me off and I keep accepting them. But I, I was in Europe and I felt something like kind of, weird on the strings while I was in the middle of the song. And I never interrupt a song to see what's going on. Because right. there's stuff going There's always going to be something going on. Someone's tripping over wires behind the stage. That, that happened in, in uh, where were we? We were somewhere in Wales and somebody, one of the stage people was like banging around behind me. And, you know, oh it, it's behind it. I'm like, oh my God, but you just keep playing. Yeah. And uh, so I kept playing. I felt this funny, sticky stuff going on. And then at the end of the song, I looked down. There's like blood coming, striped across my guitar, you know. Oh my and God. my finger is separated from the nail. I can't oh. tell you how many times I've done shows with like different Band-Aid tips wrapped over my fingers. <laughs> Crazy glue. I did Prairie Home Companion like that once with my fingers covered with duct tape. But it, it doesn't let you play. You can't play with duct tape. There's no traction. But no. you have to, you have to, because otherwise, you know, you, you'd be at some emergency room getting your hand stitched up instead of doing a show. Right. So, yeah, yeah, blood. And then now I have this thing where I was doing a show in Pennsylvania, and I was pounding with basically my wrist, okay, the under the edge of my palm yeah. and my wrist where, you you know, you have, like, a lot of of stuff going on in that part of your body right there in your wrist. And, and then I... I had bruised myself, a lot of bruising, a lot of things where I went too far and didn't realize it while I was playing. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason why I go like, you know what, I have to take it easy because I'm like injuring myself. And uh, I looked down and there was this bruise there and now there's kind of a, a swelling there that just stays. And somebody at Fur Peace Ranch, you know, Yorma's place, yeah, yeah. when I was teaching there, he, he grabbed my hand and he, he looked at my wrist and he said, that's uh, and he named what it is. It's a cyst of some kind that comes from, it's just very small. It's like a quarter of an inch by a quarter. But it's just this little spot that was developed there to protect that part of my hand, which takes so much pressure. So, yeah, so... What about your slide playing? Like, that's obviously a big part of what you do. Uh, from what I remember, you mostly play an open G. Is that, is that mostly your tuning, or do you use all different tunings? The history of slide, Fred McDowell was playing a slide when I met him, and it had like an inch-long piece of metal on the end of his ring finger. And with that one little tiny piece of metal, and the whole finger was bent, you know, was able to bend at the knuckles. That's it? It was, it was one inch long? 
it was this tiny little piece wow. of metal. Fred McDowell, look, they weren't slides made in stores until way on into the, like near the 90s, the 80s, the 90s. And they were only sized for a man and they were only covering an entire finger. So even then I couldn't find a slide. But back in the day, you know, players had to be creative. Fred McDowell once used a beef marrow bone. And people were using jack knives and little pieces of metal and broken glass and anything Socket that they could find because they were inventing that, although there uh-huh. was the Hawaiian style that they were aware of, I'm pretty sure. People yeah. knew yeah. about the sliding over the strings thing that came from Hawaii. And uh, also, by the way, I think I want to mention that Mississippi John Hurt called open G tuning Spanish. And right. so I know John Hammond and I both talk about the fact that there were uh, caravans of uh, of people playing flamenco that were in Mississippi in that day. And there was a an influx of that style, flamenco style, had entered the realm and, and people were passing uh, influences back and forth. And I think that's that Robert Johnson's role that he does with his hand when he's playing, and I teach that in my videos and guitar lessons, that role, which is a flamenco role, uh-huh. and that's, uh, that, that that's related to Mississippi John Hurt calling Open G Spanish. They might have gotten that from the flamenco players. But oh, clearly well. <laughs> there, is, there is a cross-referencing of styles, materials, and influences, which is yeah. why I say nothing was created in a bubble. Right, right, of course. You know, so back to the slide, um, you'd have to create your own. You, you'd have to come up with your own slide. And then years later, so I didn't use a slide because like Stephen Grossman and John Fahey and, and John Hammond, they were able to break a bottle, thus the term bottleneck. And, yeah. and that was good for their size hand. My hand was too small and couldn't find anything to fit. So I went on for years playing Robert Johnson with my, uh, you know, just with my bare fingers and without a slide. Oh, really? Okay, interesting. Yeah, then at some point I, I just had this realization that that the people whose music I loved so much were using a slide, and if I was yeah. going to do proper honor, pay homage to them, that I needed to figure out how to play slide. Yeah, so yeah. it was a struggle for... The first years, it, it was I was making all the classic mistakes, and now I'm able to teach slide, and I give slide workshops, and I talk about this to help other people not get stuck in that same trap, which is shooting too quickly up the neck, overshooting, undershooting, right. sharp notes, flat notes, a sure. lot of buzzing, and the vibrato, too fast, too nervous, and it just doesn't work. Yeah. So it, I was like that for years until Bonnie Raitt, uh, performed a part on one of my records and we were mixing her in the studio. She played a solo on Ramblin' on My Mind on, on uh, I think it's on Confessions of a Blues Singer. And we were mixing her and she was soloed in the speakers and I go, I listened to just her playing and I went oh my god, I'm doing it all wrong. It's relaxed. It's like, right. I, I say it this way, Bonnie, the way she was playing, she was taking a stroll up the neck. And I thought, awesome. man, that is that is so good. I needed to know about that because I was taking, you know, I was sprinting out of the gate and it wasn't working right. for me. So she was taking a stroll up the neck and then she'd get where she wanted to go and she'd hesitate for a moment. And then uh-huh. she would do this slow, funky rocking. The vibrato was relaxed. It was funky. I'm going like, oh, 
you know, it's not this high speed, nervous, edgy sound. It's this relaxed, easy going. And there was this hesitation first, which gave, made it so poignant. So I started working on it for real after uh-huh. mixing that record and listening to Bonnie like that, like not, not totally by herself. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, it was so informative. And, uh, you know, I know, I know it meant something to her that, that I uh, say that about her beautiful playing because she, she wrote me back when I sent her her chapter that I really was moved by that and, and influenced by that, by Bonnie. I was also influenced by Rye Cooter's beautiful playing. Sure. And uh, there's several others who are just so good. But it's always, they, it's always relaxed and easygoing. So then I started working on it. And from that knowledge and from that information, I was able to start playing. Now, I, I uh, couldn't find anything that would fit me. So John Hammond said, go out and get yourself a socket wrench. They come in all sizes. The old little George trick. Yeah, so I found, I tried on all these different socket wrenches, and I found one for my ring finger, mm-hmm. and I liked it I liked it to be half finger length, not the whole, not covering the whole finger. And okay. there's a lot of benefits to that for me, because for one thing, it leaves the rest of my fingers more mobile for yep. doing yeah, other, other actions, fretting partial cords, and so on. And I just feel good with it bent at the knuckle. So, and I thought, well, why do I do that? Because you can pick any finger you want. It's a Zen thing. It's like a tennis backhand. Uh, every player does it their own way. And I always tell yeah. people, do it the way you want to do it. Don't do it the way I do it. Don't do it the way your friend does it. Do it the way you want to do it because it's personal. Yeah. And you're, Very you know, personal. you're unique and it's got to be right for you. Yeah. So, uh, I, but I realized I got the idea the way I do it from Fred McDowell. Yeah, so one other thing I was wondering about, and this is kind of random and unrelated to what we've been talking about, but uh, it is a, uh, a very interesting part of your career is that there's a, a recording from the early 90s where there's a killer solo by Stevie Wonder, just sort of out of the blue. And I'm wondering if you can just tell me a little bit about how that happened and uh, what that was like working in the studio with a guy like Stevie Wonder. Oh, I had a friend who worked, look, I believe in dreaming big. I don't, I, I think that, you know, be careful what you wish for because it might happen. Uh, ideas, I believe in the power of ideas. And it, and if I had gone with the outward reality and everything that people said to me, I would have no career because people said, oh, you'll never make it doing blues. You know, you, it's it's just a curiosity. Nobody cares. If we go back to the 60s when I started and, you know, I stopped doing music for years because I was so discouraged. And then I came back and I thought no one will care. And I did High Hill Blues, John Sebastian producing. And I just thought nobody would care. And I would have one LP to give to a friend and that would be it. And then Rolling Stone gave it a, you know, a memorable stellar. Dave Marsh at Rolling Stone gave it a wonderful, wonderful review. And that kind of launched my career, High Hill Blues. Um, so the power of ideas led to this ridiculous thought, and uh, this was early on in my Rounder records, uh, the history of my later 14 records for Rounder, I just thought, well, maybe, maybe something good could happen, okay, and I always had my mind open, I said, oh, you know, I'd like to play with Mark Knopfler, oh, I'd like to play with Bonnie Raitt, oh, I'd like to, so I had a song that I had recorded, and it just was a shell, and it was just acoustic guitar, no drums, no click track, just acoustic guitar and me singing. 
And I felt like it needed something. It didn't have what it needed. So I was driving along in my car, listening on cassette like we used to and trying to get ideas. And suddenly it hit me. I said, I know what's missing. I know what's missing from this song. And it just hit me like Stevie Wonder is missing (laughs) from this song. So I called up my friend Jim Gallagher because Jim was an engineer who was freelance. And he had worked on a couple of my rounder LPs. He'd just been there. I don't remember how he was in that studio and I was making a record there. But... So he was a friend, and then he went to L.A., and he was working at Wonderland, Stevie mm-hmm. Wonder Studio. And so I called up Jim, and I said, Jim, do you think there's any chance? Because the idea just sort of came into my head. And Jim said, well, you know, it's worth a shot. Send me a, a cassette. So I sent it, and then I didn't think a thing of it. You know, I thought, like, oh, yeah, this is never going to happen. I only had three records for Rounder at the time, and later there was 14, and then there was three here and four there, and, you know, now there's 30-something records. <laughs> but so I just thought, forget it. You know, I did what I could do. That's all you can do, right, is do what you can do, and you keep your dreams alive. That's right. So one night in the middle of the night, Jim called and he said, guess what? I mean, I, he woke me up because like, he's working all night in the studio with Stevie. Everybody knows that Stevie Wonder just keeps working. And yes. engineers have to replace the other person, have to get some rest. And it's like you have to be cycled into the next group and Stevie's still awake. So he calls me in the wee hours and he says, guess what? Stevie said, yes. So I, you know, I went to L.A. and we rented an expensive studio, which is what you had to do in those days. Uh-huh. Today, you should make an album for free in a laptop, and then you had to rent three, $400 an hour. So we're sitting there, we're waiting, and in walks Stevie Wonder with his cousin, Calvin, was bringing him in the door. Uh-huh. And he was so kind to me. He was so gracious to me. He just, whatever you want, he said, you're the artist. And he was just like, wow. he didn't have to be, he didn't have to do it. He didn't have to be nice to me. He didn't have to be kind, but he was. So I went and sat, I stood next to him in the studio and I got overwhelmed and started crying as he's doing three solos in a row. They're all perfect. He's just yeah. being generous. He's giving us choices. Oh my God. And you never know what's going to happen. That is so You cool. never know. You should, you should think big. You should ask. You should you know you have to <laughs> because you ask not, if you know what I'm saying. I love that you're just driving down the road and thinking, you know what this song needs? Stevie Wonder. Yeah, and, then yeah, it, yeah. and then it happens. That's so You know wicked. what? People love that story because I, I like to think that when I tell that story, <clears throat> there's other people who are thinking, you know, I, I think I'm not, I, maybe I'm limiting myself some people uh-huh. may think maybe I should stop limiting myself because good things can happen. And maybe I'm saying, well, they'll never happen. So then they might never happen, but they might happen. If you think, think that they, if you go ahead and, and yeah. experiment, you know, you yeah. just try. I've done mm-hmm. the same thing many times, not with Stevie wonder though. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, I'd like to thank you so much for uh, hanging out today and, and sure. telling me all these stories and talking about your life and career and stuff. And, I look forward to to hearing what's next, and uh, thanks so much for doing this today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, thanks, Rory. Take care. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rory Block. We'll be back next month for another gripping and stunning rendition of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. 
As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music